Herzlich Willkommen zum Modellansatz, der mathematische Podcast aus Karlsruhe mit Gudrun Täter und Sebastian Ritterbusch. Hello, today I have another guest in my office, which is always nice, but uh, the topic today is energy markets, and that sounds so fascinating because there are, in this short word, there are so many aspects which are interesting at the moment and which will be very important for our future, this energy and the markets which kind of are the tool which we use just now. Uh, to organize how we work with each other and um, how we pay for things and what we give worth to things. Uh, this is part of uh, financial mathematics. And um, to my dismay, <laughs> I have to say that um, I am the person who no doesn't know so much about financial markets and financial mathematics. I think the only thing which is always kind of present in my head is that they are um, looking for fair prices for options. So, Sema Koshkum, maybe you can tell us what are the standard things uh, you do in order to do financial mathematics and looking for fair prices for options and other things. Okay, now I can explain a little bit yeah. uh, about the option pricing. You have to, theory. because I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh, Classical yeah. market models used uh, in option pricing mm -hmm. theory. And the, when, when it comes to option pricing, the first uh, work which comes to our mind is the work from Black and Scholes, the seminal work. So actually this work is seen as a foundation of the modern financial theory. In a Black Scholes setting... It is assumed that the stock price follows a geometric Brownian motion with constant drift and constant volatility. And the stochastic differential equation for the stock price has a closed form solution. Uh, therefore, it is possible to obtain the price of a European call option uh, in a closed form formula. Then the Black Scholes, the famous Black Scholes formula. Is cor corresponds to the price of a fair price of a European call option. Mm. Uh, so now I remember there are connections to partial differential equations, and then sometimes there are things where I think, yes, I understand a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I will also mention yeah, yeah. The, the techniques how to price options as well. And But there are also studies which um, address the drawbacks of the Black-Scholes model. Mm. And one main critic um, towards the Black-Scholes model is the constant volatility assumption. Um, because it, it is seen as an um, oversimplification of the real dynamics of the stock price. Yeah, and this thing is, of course, um, persons who are not working in statistics might not know uh, what volatility really means in that context. So in a way, um, if you want to characterize a process, you very often have a mean value, which is very helpful as a first approximation or a zeroest approximation, however you want to count it. 
Uh, but then you have to be a little bit more precise. And the, the second possibility to characterize the process is how much it differs from this mean value over time and over the process, whatever is the variable you really want to consider. And that's one possibility to describe that as um, the so-called volatility, so how much it's varying around that. Uh, yes, exactly. So in, in the intellectual setting, it um, it is assumed that the the uh, fluctuation of the stock price is constant. So mm. even if it goes out or down, it goes with the same amount, same uh, variety. So in a way, that it's kind of the inner picture of that is that there is no real reason for that. So there are no forces present. It's just kind of a jumping around, like the gas molecules are jumping around. Uh, and uh, nevertheless, they kind of stay in, in the same field. And so they have kind of a almost maximal possibility to go away, but they will always return kind of, yeah. And so that's kind of, the, you would have kind of a measure for the volatility, how far they can go away, but there is no kind of inner force um, pushing them uh, to change that. And that's why you say it's just constant. Yeah. So as a naive, um, when you don't know more, that's perfectly fine, but it's very simple, I would say. Yeah, exactly, because uh, when, when we observe the stock price dynamics mm. with the statistical data and some other empirical analysis, one can really observe the volatility clustering phenomena. Mm. This really refers to the phases where we have really high trading activity and some other uh, phases where we have almost no trading activity. Then one can the expectation of the constant volatility during these phases is, is an oversimplification. Mm. So volatility changes depending on this uh, high trading phases and the low trading phases. Mm. So yeah. to overcome these <laughs> drawbacks, there, uh, there are several improved models have, have been introduced. And one important example of such models is the Heston stochastic volatility model. And in this model, it is assumed that the volatility is, is a stochastic process by itself. So it follows another stoch stochastic process, and to be precise, the Coxing-Ersel-Ross process. And uh, this, it, this then captures many real dynamics of the volatility, mm. because it is, a, it is a separate stochastic process right now. Yeah, but this sounds like a little bit like cheating. <laughs> no, that's just a, in order to have a strong word. <laughs> no, because of course um, you don't really know what's happening, and then you say it's a stochastic process, and then at first it's kind of fine because this kind of a clearly defined mathematical tool. But you just shift the problem to find the right stochastic process. Yes, exactly. But the uh, Coxinger-Ross process, in that sense, works quite well because. Um, It is a pro mean reverting process, mm -hmm. which we expect as a behavior of the volatility. But, and also, as long as the failure condition is satisfied, the process uh, remains positive, which we expect that uh, this variation of the stock price cannot be negative. But, okay, it's, it's a nice uh, improvement, compared to the Black-Scholes model, yeah. but it also brings a lot of complexity in our setting. Yeah. So it's not 
a trivial task anymore to price options in this model because we do not have any closed-form solution. Only for European call options, we have uh, semi-analytical formulas, but except that when, when, if, when it comes to pricing more exotic options and more complicated options, complex options, then we have um, not so uh, much choices than using a numerical technique to solve. Hmm. So what is the, um, what is an, a European option? How does this work? If it's kind of the simplest case of things happening, maybe it's a good thing to just tell it once. Uh, European option uh, is a, European option is an option which gives the um, right, but not the obligation, to the holder to buy or sell one unit of underlying asset at a predefined time and at a predefined uh, price. And this uh, predefined time is known as maturity of option and the predefined price is known as the strike price of the option. So um, the holder of a European call option has the right to buy one unit of a stock or any underlying asset at the maturity with a given strike price. So in, in European call options are the when when it comes to option pricing is the first uh, example that one considers the price because um, it 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 can be only ex exercised at the maturity. But this early exercise, uh, future of the options, which refers to American options, bring much more complexity in option pricing. Yeah. So if, to have a trivial example for that would be I'm calling my oil seller uh, in order to have um, oil for heating my house. And I'm in the summer and I'm saying so in, in September I would um, buy so-and-so many liters of oil for that price and he might agree and then I have an option to do that. Yes, exactly. Uh, you have the option to do that, but when, when we reach September, you can check, for example, if the strike price is, let's say, five euros, you can check how much the oil costs in the real market and uh, you can see if it is lower than five euros, then there is that, that makes no sense for you to pay five euros for this oil. If it is higher than five euros, then you have the advantage. Have a good deal, yes. Have a good deal to buy this. Yeah. But for the oil seller, um, you have to provide him a fair price as a premium of mm -hmm. this option. Otherwise, why would he keep this oil for you. He can also go to market and sell if the price is higher than yeah. five euros. That's why you have to pay this premium as an option price to this oil seller. That's the option price that we would like to compute and it has to be fair. Yeah, if, if you want to have a long-term relationship, it has to be fair, <laughs> yes. Uh, <clears throat> so um, if you... This, the thing is... Um, so before we were talking that um, you said that introducing the stochastic um, process uh, on top of everything else makes it complicated so that uh, only in a few simple cases you have something uh, still similar to an analytical expression. 
and otherwise you have to use numerical tools. Um, how would these numerical tools look like? So is it more like approximating um, a partial differential equation, so as in my world, so to say? Or is it even that you would have to model the stochastic process with the help of numerics? So just to have an idea how complicated things get. Uh, yeah, in financial mathematics, we can use several methods to deal with the problems that we encounter. And uh, first of all, we have to deal with the stochastic processes that are used to model the behavior of this financial phenomena. And one can then employ purely stochastic approaches, which corresponds to the sto tools from uh, stochastic calculus. One can also use probabilistic approaches um, by using the tools from probability theory. And the PDE approach is um, one can also use the PDE approach. The, Uh, correspondence between the PDE approach and the stochastic representation of the problem is established by the Feynman-Katch theorem. And this theorem states that one can uh, obtain the PDE, PDE ex ex uh, representation, uh, which corresponds to this stochastic representation. So instead of dealing with the stochastic representation with, by using stochastic or probabilistic tools, one can transfer the problem into PDE world and try to find a solution over there. Yeah, just because we know there's already something done and we might um, use it, yes. And with the stochastic equations, sometimes you have the feeling you lose, the f at least I have the feeling because I'm not expert there, that I'm sometimes not really sure if I'm doing the right thing because... Um, Expressing, so you know, I have the feeling I know what I'm doing as long as I'm using measures, because uh, this is something which I know from my partial differential equations. But um, if I really have to understand the stochastic process, this sometimes really blows up my head, <laughs> and then I feel more secure if I'm on the side of partial differential equations. So I would like to make a remark here, actually. <laughs> In, in, in their original work, Black and Scholes um, dealt with the, with the finding of, of the price of a European coal option by solving the PDE, corresponding PDE. Okay. So, so it, they were it, like me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there, they, um, when, when one transfers the option price, European coal option price, into a PDE, in the black shoal setting, it is actually the heat equation. Mm. So after solving this heat equation, they transformed the solution back to the stochastic uh, environment and get the corresponding option price. This is the famous black shoals formula. Yeah, and so heat equation is kind of the simplest example for a parabolic equation. And um, it's not only for a distribution of... Um, Heat also heat like um, energy which comes from warmth, but it's for all kinds of processes where something is kind of concentrated at the very beginning and then is distributed, for example, in space or in time. And uh, it's kind of a, a process which very often is observed. And when any of these methods does not apply mm. to solve our problem, 
in financial mathematics, one can simply employ the numerical methods such as Monte Carlo methods and uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny because Monte, of course Monte Carlo method is a numerical method, but of course it's kind of on the other end of the spectrum as the methods I'm used to working with. Yeah, because uh, in a way, for example, with my students uh, in Heidelberg, they um, mostly wanted to become mathematics teachers. And um, I did a few seminars with them and tried to make some interesting questions, which were not really, you know, it's not life-changing, uh, like finding the right price. But, for example, um, to find uh, the number pi by just throwing needles, <laughs> things like that. And then um, if you do this often enough, it's really possible because it's just a stochastic process. <laughs> uh, if you do it really without um, forcing the needle to somehow fly all the time the right, also the same way, just really uh, randomly. And um, also you find out that uh, it's really not so easy to have um, randomness, um, which is not kind of filtered through, through things. So there were kind of two things. So they had a little bit of fun. They learned something about stochastic processes, and in the end, it was even something which was tangible, even with school children. Yeah, and uh, so that's this Monte. And so when you are tell, speaking about Monte Carlo process, I'm always uh, throwing needles in my head. <laughs> Actually, that's that's the typical example when it comes to explain how Monte Carlo works in principle. And so. I was thinking, I'm a bit strange. Okay, that's typical. Thank no. you. <laughs> Uh, no, no, it is um, the uh, when you read some books which mm. explain the Monte Carlo and the simple idea behind of it, it starts with this kind of examples, which I really find in a sense, uh, find uh, good in a sense, because it provides some uh, visual and understandable example how it works in reality. But there is also some theoretical backgrounds which makes uh, Monte Carlo methods powerful. Yeah, of course you have this disadvantage that you really need huge numbers of um, experiments in order to really have the full picture of your stochastic process you want to model. Uh, yes, this actually corresponds to the uh, theoretical strength of the mm. Monte Carlo methods and this Uh, namely, this theorem is the Kolmogorov strong law of large numbers, which ensures that your estimation converts to the real value that you would like to get. So there is another theorem which also um, provides the uh, theoretical foundation for Monte Carlo methods is that uh, central limit theorem. And this uh, refers to the error distribution of your estimation. Yeah, Monte Carlo, I find Monte Carlo methods really useful and especially they are, one, one can really realize their uh, advantage when one has to deal with high dimensional problems because many PDE methods or many other methods are suffering from the high, dimension, high dimensionality of Some problems is also in financial mathematics. Yeah. But for Monte Carlo... Doesn't methods, make so much difference, yeah. yeah. It starts with huge numbers and it stays with huge numbers. <laughs> Now, there's also one advantage that in, in general all the experiments you have to do, they are not connected at all. So if you have a huge parallel computer, 
you can ask all the processors to do the same experiment at the same moment. And it's very effective um, to use parallel computers there. Yeah, exactly. Also for, for financial uh, problems. And this parallelization also helps you to, to make it faster to obtain the real-time uh, real uh, results, yeah. which is fast enough to, that one can check the results in real-time and for trading and for hedging yeah. purposes. That's a kind of funny thing, yeah, real-time. Uh, because if you are just at the telephone and ask, um, kind of um, trying to find the right place, uh, price, you might not be able to say, I will tell it tomorrow, but it should be like... <laughs> In a few minutes or moments, then yes. that that might cost to the company a yeah. lot of money, actually. Yes, and of course these things. Yeah, the telephone is even kind of really old-fashioned because nowadays everything is kind of done online, and then sometimes the, just the computer decides in um, less than a second and has to make these kinds of decisions. Yeah. And what is really essential with the Monte Carlo ideas is actually one has no interest in how the experiment is evolving. Like, let's say the stochastic uh, uh, process is evolving. We are just interested in the possible outcomes, outcomes of it. And whenever we get all possible outcomes, we just uh, sample out from the whole, uh, whole possible outcomes and take the arithmetic average to compute the expected value of this process. So it is the, the idea is simple. We have no interest how the process is evolving in reality. We're just interested in the outcomes of it. What kind of outcomes? Let's say we have a world of outcomes standing there and we sample out some of them and take the mean value of this sample and then this corresponds to the expected value that we would like to... Mm -hmm. Yes, and so the only weak point is that you have enough richness of the possible outcomes. Yeah, this is uh, for this we can one can use the variance yeah. as a measure of the accuracy of your estimation, and uh, v by using the variance and the corresponding standard deviation, one can obtain the uh, confidence interval where the Monte Carlo estimation lies in. But the, the critical point is if there is any bias in our simulation or not. So if there is no bias, then we are sure that the real uh, solution also lies within this confidence mm -hmm. interval. But if there is bias, one has to also take care of the bias introduced in our simulation. Yeah, so the bias, for example, in throwing the needle has really to take care for that I'm kind of throwing it in all possible directions and not have a preferred direction. Or, you know, even if it's like a very hidden um, bias, it's even dangerous already. Yeah, and if we talk about the stochastic differential mm. equations, for example, if I am simulating the process exactly without using any discrete scheme, then this means I do not introduce any bias, bias yeah. into my simulation. But if I am discretizing the process first and then simulating the uh, possible outcomes by using this discretized uh, version of my process, then this means that 
uh, there is some bias going on due to this discrete scheme mm. in, in my simulation. Yeah, and that's kind of um, something where you have to think hard uh, with Monte Carlo methods that you don't introduce that through the vector. Uh, if you introduce, if you are, it is, if it is inevitable uh, to use a discrete scheme, mm. then you have to be careful uh, by two resources of error in uh, Monte Carlo simulation. One is the bias coming from the discrete scheme. Mm. Another one is the variance, Monte Carlo variance, coming out of your uh, simulations variety of your simulations so to to handle the bias one has to find a good discrete scheme which has maybe a convergence rate is known and which converts fast and for uh, dealing with the variance of the monte carlo one has to use maybe some variance reduction techniques which we can consider as an improved Monte Carlo technique. Mm. So in a way, up to now we were discussing um, basic, one could almost say historical things about financial mathematics, if one can say this to such a young field. So uh, thinking about how to find fair option prices and uh, starting with the simplest model, which is black scores, and then uh, introducing stochastic processes in order to not have um, the same volatility for the whole development of the process. And this is already kind of uh, leading to very complicated um, uh, questions how to solve um, the whole model afterwards. And um, you were telling us that, for example, we can do this with Monte Carlo methods. If we go over to um, dealing with prices on the energy market, um, what can you save from that kind of classical setting and what is different? Um, electricity prices in general exhibit certain properties uh, which we do not really observe in other markets. Um, mainly those properties are because of the uh, unique characteristics of electricity itself. And most important one is that we cannot physically store the electricity. And this leads to several differences compared to other financial derivatives such as stocks, options, and uh, commodities. Uh, for example, we observe spikes in electricity prices, and spikes mean uh, sudden upward or downward jumps, um, which is followed by a fast reversion to the mean level. So this, these spikes are um, not easy to model, and we do not really observe spikes in uh, stock prices, for example. This is some totally different nature compared to stock market. And these spikes also, uh, also cause to have uh, extreme variability in the electricity prices, And for example, in stock markets, we observe a moderate volatility level changing between 1% and 1.5%. And in commodities like crude oil or natural gas, uh, we have relatively high volatilities between 1.5% to 4%. 
But when it comes to the electricity, we have uh, 50% volatility, which is the highest compared to other. Uh, yeah, it's a completely new scale. Yeah. Uh, other commodities. Yeah. So this, uh, for example, this is a great challenge. One has to really take care of spikes and uh, in the process of modeling, and one has to somehow capture this uh, price volatility in a reasonable way. Hmm. Yeah, the thing is, if you have in mind that we are coming from things which are comparable to the heat equation, uh, where we know that whenever there would be a spike, for example, at the very beginning, it is smoothened out by the process. That's kind of the opposite what we need now, isn't it? Yeah, there actually the, the, the operator running the PDE is smooth. Yeah, but here we have really uh, when when one obtains the operator like an infinitesimal generator of the process, which can relate to the PDE, when, then then we have no uh, no no smooth behavior at yeah. all. <laughs> yeah, and if we so, would have smooth behavior, it wouldn't be a good model because we don't find spikes. Yeah, you cannot really capture the spikes. Yeah, and another. Uh, the uh, property of the electricity prices are they show uh, strong seasonality, uh, which are related day-to-day -day variations and month-to-month variations. So in other words, we can say electricity consumption changes depending on the day of the week and the month of the year. So it's not uh, fixed for throughout the whole year. So depending on the day, depending on the month, we have different electricity consumption behavior. So this, is, uh, this corresponds to the seasonality of electricity prices. This is also somehow different than other markets. And uh, another important property of electricity prices is that they follow a mean reverting process. So there is a mean reversion level where in the base level uh, the electricity prices lay somehow in this mean, around this mean reversion level. For that purpose, Ornstein-Uhlenbeck process is widely used to model the electricity prices. Uh, but in its crude form, Ornstein-Uhlenbeck process um, assumes that the randomness coming into the game is the Gaussian. Mm. Uh, it's also one of the standard processes. Yeah, yeah. it's one of the standard mm. processes in that sense. But to capture the spikes, for example, in the electricity prices, this uh, Gaussian-driven Ornstein-Uhlenbeck process is not enough. So one has to introduce another component It can be a jump process, it can be a levy process, and this combination of the Ornstein-Uhlenbeck process with a levy or a jump component is known as generalized Ornstein-Uhlenbeck process, which is really widely used in mm. uh, modeling the electricity prices. There are also some models, structural models, which is used to model the electricity prices. And these models are based on the idea of uh, having the equilibrium between supply and demand. And there are some Markov models which 
combines the Ornstein-Ullenbeck process with jumps, and these are known as the Markov jump diffusion process. And there are regime switching models, which aims to distinguish the base regime and the spike regime of the electricity prices. And finally, I would like to mention the multi-factor models, which has um, several components um, to referring to different aspects of the electricity prices. And the first component is the seasonality component. And the second one is the uh, Ornstein-Ullenbeck mean reverting process, uh, Ornstein-Ullenbeck process with the Gaussian distribution. And the last component is the jump process or a level process um, to capture the spikes. So it's like if you want to print um, a nice magazine, which is full of colors, then you have like the blue part and the yellow part and the red part, and then they have to add to the full picture. Yeah, actually, this is like uh, so trying to take all the factors mm. of the electricity prices into account. Uh, as you said, like refer with different yeah. uh, color well, You could also regions. say like filtering out you know, that this is the one process which you observe, which is come kind of one thing which is happening or something which is really independent of this, but also happening is a jump. And then you have something which is even also independent from the other two. And if I combine all three, then I get kind of the complete picture. Yes, this idea behind the multi-factor mm. models are like this, exactly. So uh, these are the models which has been introduced so far. And um, But besides the challenges in modeling the electricity prices, there exist also physical challenges, which is caused by the physical nature of electricity itself. For example, there should be an instantaneous balance between the production and the consumption uh, to ensure the grid stability. So this is the physical aspect of the electricity, uh, but since I am not uh, an expert in this field, I will, it's beyond of my... Yeah, yeah. the thing is, um, since... I have a few students who are working with renewable energies. Uh, we had quite a few conversations about how to make uh, energy um, stay in batteries or things like that. And what could be future steps in order to solve this little, little <laughs> this huge problem, um, storing energy. It's not so, not so clear. So up to now, we kind of agreed that it's always possible and should be enforced that the energy which is produced is also consumed at more or less the same moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I can also um, think of some f uh, physical solutions which can keep electricity at least for some time. Yeah. But when it comes to the huge amount of production, then uh, there is it's no... impossible, yeah. It's impossible, like yeah. physically impossible yeah. to store all the electricity and keep it there for long and then uh, send it to the end users to consume. Mm. Yeah, this leads then to the fact that sometimes you get money if you take energy. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, this is... sounds a bit uh, strange, yes. Yeah, 
this uh, to to ensure the grid stability yeah. the grid operators they have to really uh, be uh, really precise about how much load is introduced in the grid and how much uh, um, load should be uh, introduced because of the end users that are waiting for that so this is a really really a physical and engineering problem to ensure the stability yeah. and grid optimization also what i've learned from the conversation i was hinting at is that of course we have a certain experience with energy markets for like uh, 100 years um, building power plants and um, type of power plants where you have a, a planning period how much energy they will produce and how much energy we will probably need so of course you can kind of make guesses on the needing side, but on the consumption side you can uh, on the production side you can be quite precise. But due to the renewable energies which entered the field, a lot of things changed. Um, do you see this also in your modeling of the energy markets? Uh, yes, of course. I mean that that has a really certain effect on the market behavior because actually uh, in Germany the the strategy. The energy strategy uh, follows the objective to phase out the uh, uh, nuclear power plants by 2021. Which and is then, soon, yeah. Yeah, which is soon, and uh, then gradually replace it with the renewable energy resources. So when it comes to the renewable energy resources, then um, in financial markets, for example, if one uh, have a forecast of production, some amount, and one can sell this amount in the market, but uh, with the delivery time, of course, so delivery time can be for the, in the spot market, it can be the next day, but this forecast is done today and trading is also done today, but the production has to be done tomorrow. So there could be some forecast errors between today and tomorrow. Uh, due to this renewable resources, then this forecast errors can really um, cause high risks for the market participants. So to overcome this uh, forecast errors, Germany also has a really well-developed market structure, and we have um, two types of elect spot electricity spot markets in Germany. One is the day-ahead market, which the tr all the trades are based on the auctions. And the second one, which is more important for the renewable, uh, which is more dependent on the renewable resources, are the intraday market. Which means you um, make prices in the morning for noon and for the afternoon, things like that? No, um, intraday market, so uh, intraday market starts... On the day at three, ah, at three in the afternoon, in the afternoon, mm. and continues up to thirty minutes before the delivery. So one can really it's and it provides continuous trading, and it it gives the opportunity to the market uh, participants to adjust their pos position more precisely in the market by reducing the forecasting errors. Mm. So I can. For example, if I am an owner of a uh, wind turbine, and if I make a prediction, a, for, a forecast for the production 
tomorrow for delivery at 2 in the afternoon. And I trade this uh, amount that I suppose to produce, let's say 10, 10 gigawatts. I, trade, I can trade this in day ahead market, but whatever it takes, I have to provide 10 gigawatts at 2 tomorrow. So if there is no, in, not enough wind, so I might uh, have some forecast errors when, it, uh, when I reach for, to the delivery time. But I can also trade this 10 gigawatts of my forecast in intraday market continuously until half past one next day. So I can really adjust continuously my production forecast and even 30 minutes, up to 30 minutes before I can trade that continuously in the market. So this really reduces the forecast errors that I can make. So intraday market is, is in that sense, it is really important and it's really growing by the introduction of renewable energy resources. And uh, one has to have um, then the, uh, um, the behavior of the electricity prices can also be different than they had prices. Of course, they are related. It's not completely something unrelated to they had prices because it is electricity traded in day ahead and the intraday market. But still, uh, the price cannot be totally different than the ahead market, but still it has some specific features. So how do you model that? So that's my aim <laughs> in this new project. So I would like to find a, a good model which captures the dynamics and the Uh, proper statistical properties of the intraday electricity prices and also the electricity demand. And then, um, then we can continue with some other pricing, other financial derivatives written on electricity. Mm. So in a way, if I'm just um, taking this as a naive idea, you, you would start with models which are okay for... From the classical way to deal one day ahead and then see what kind of fluctuations you see which are not inherent in the classical one and to add this kind of as a force or fifth uh, feature to your to your filters you have to adapt. Yes, and this can be one way, but right now I, uh, my idea is to analyze the real data of the intraday market electricity prices And then to extract some certain information about the electricity prices and the behavior of electricity prices in intraday market. And then I can use this exploited information in my modeling process. So that's my uh, short-term plan for now. Mm. So um, how did you enter the field of financial mathematics? Um, so I, I have finished my uh, studies, bachelor and master studies in Turkey. And afterwards, I came to Germany to do my PhD. And by that time, there was this uh, offer uh, for a PhD student in Kaiserslautern uh, from Professor Dr. Ralf Korn. 
So I, uh, one colleague of mine, uh, she was also a student from Professor Korn, and uh, she recommended me as an applicant. And I came here to, to have an interview, and at the end I got the position to do my PhD here. And I finished my PhD in, at the University of Kaiserslautern. Uh, during my PhD, I was working on uh, pricing exotic options in the Heston model by using an improved Monte Carlo technique. And yeah, afterwards, uh, I got the postdoc position at the same university, but this time I changed the field a little bit, and, and I'm now working uh, energy markets and modeling the electricity demand in intraday market. Yes, but uh, what made you uh, prepared for having a PhD in financial mathematics? Was there something uh, that you already prepared for that during your master's time, or was it just a fascinating topic? Uh, well, I mean, as a as a educational background, I did not have. I mean, I studied mathematics, but I didn't have anything special to financial mathematics. But I was personally interested in stochastic processes and I was just uh, attending to the lectures of my colleague uh, to learn something more about the stochastic processes and how they are used in financial mathematics as well. And I find the, the, the area, the field is so attractive to me. I'm really, uh, I find it really challenging. I'm really excited about to learn new things and to Uh, get the challenge and, and try to solve them in a way. And I would like, I am really into this field. I'm so happy <laughs> that I picked financial mathematics to do a PhD. Yeah, so from the outside, there's always this connection that uh, in financial mathematics, you have to solve very deep theoretical things. So like very exotic measures and things like that, where, you know, I was just already saying that my head explodes sometimes because um, it's kind of very abstract, at least from the outside. But in the end, there is a number, there is a price, you know, that's something you can touch. And to have both, that's kind of nice or fascinating from the outside even. Yes, exactly. I mean, uh, one can really do uh, deep theoretical uh, examinations and theoretical work in financial mathematics but on the other hand one can really do so many practical use of the new models and everything like it always has a, a reflection from the real world so that's that makes me also feel uh, so uh, excited about this field so for example you can introduce a new model for Uh, for anything, any any financial phenomena, and at the end you can really taste, calibrate your model with the real market data, and you can estimate the parameters and everything, and you can really see if this model is really fitting to the real uh, life dynamics. So this is, as you said, this is something that I feel I can touch. So this gives me the feeling uh, to to be um, somehow it's uh, more active and up-to-date. Yes, 
Now, if you studied um, mathematics in Turkey and now you're working with students here as well, um, do you feel that there is um, very much similarity or more difference between how mathematics is uh, taught and how mathematics is part of the culture in Germany and Turkey? Yeah, uh, as an educational system, there are really big differences because here uh, the branching of the mathematics field goes like uh, starts already in during the bachelor studies but in turkey um, the bachelor studies in math pure mathematics is for four years and they more or less take the take the same general structure of the uh, mathematics so there is no specialization. When you finish your bachelor, that's your bachelor. There is no uh, specialization in this field. Mm. Okay, you can write your bachelor thesis in one Because area. Because you have to specialize in something, yeah, yeah, for but, the for the thesis. Uh, it's not like like here, for mm. example. Here, one can really uh, pick a branch in the field of mathematics and get more lectures on that and. Special, specialize on this branch. Yeah, in Turkey, um, there are really, really good universities, which I find their um, educational system really good. Uh, I am, uh, I have the up-to-date knowledge with uh, these universities because my sister <laughs> is also studying at the mathematics department at one of these universities. And when I look at her uh, process and everything, I can really see uh, the education is good. The quality of education is good. But this, unfortunately, does not apply to whole all the universities in Turkey. This is one thing which has to be fixed, in my opinion. But, for example, uh, in Germany, there is no really big difference between the universities, I guess, in the educational in mathematics, sense. Yes, at I would least say, in mathematics. Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter if I uh, study at the University A, study mathematics at University A or at University B, the difference is not so huge. But in Turkey, if you want to get really good education, you have to go really some certain universities. This is my personal observation. Mm. But I can somehow related to my own experience and to my sister's experience. That's why somehow I can make this comparison at least in a in a with a personal mm. um there is uh, somehow the culture in Germany that um for example when I'm meeting persons um and we don't know each other but we have to make a little bit of small talk Then you talk about the weather and then you talk about what you are doing professionally. And when I'm saying I'm a mathematician, then uh, very often uh, they tell me, oh, they never could calculate. And so, like, you know, like this would be a, a fine thing, you know. <laughs> As, you know, I would think they are really stupid if they can't calculate, but they think that it's kind of okay to say that they can't calculate. Uh, so there is kind of a, a certain culture that um, mathematics is only for specialists and everybody else doesn't really care for it, which, you know, we work against this with the podcast. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> is there something similar in Turkey? Of course. Some people think that they don't need mathematics at all. 
I mean, they are also fine without not computing anything, mm. as long as they can count the money when they are paying for something and so on. They are fine, but in general, they, to me, they oversimplify mm. to uh, how mathematics is involved in our lives. Uh, but to me, I mean, as a mathematician, I really can. Whenever I look around, I can see anywhere the effect of the mathematics. So this this is like a really really cliche in Turkey as well. So some people live in their world without mathematics and they are so happy. But some people they are fine with that. So I don't think they think that I cannot learn mathematics and I am also okay if I don't learn. But um, this to me is like. Um, something that has to be solved because there is no not a certain rule which says this type of people can learn mathematics and this type of people cannot learn mathematics there is no difference everybody can learn mathematics to me hmm. so but the key point is this the education the approach how to have one uh, the teacher introduce the topic or the the concept of the inside the mathematics to the learners so it's really important how to communicate the knowledge in mathematics with the lear- uh, with the students once you are once the teacher is in a way losing the attention of the students then this student ha- ha- creates like a bias mm-hmm. in in mind by saying i cannot learn mathematics mathematics is too difficult for me of course i mean advanced mathematics is not easy one one has to really use the brain to uh, understand the proofs understand the theorems to come up with new theorems and everything but still it's not uh, it's not like an uh, in, in interest area for people who are gifted people who are really good or whatever I don't think I mean to to some extent everybody can learn mathematics so this extent can ver- have a variation depending on the real interest and also a little bit of skills and also the attitude from the teacher and everything but it's not I don't think that there is a zero level that some people cannot really learn mathematics some people has no skills or no talent or something this mm. is For me, it's a dangerous idea, actually. Hmm. So at which age did you decide uh, to study mathematics? Mm, for me, I was uh, not so early, to be honest, like, like the other people, other mathematicians, that when we read, uh, we see that they decided already when they are six, seven, and they were really into mathematics. I always loved mathematics, but I was also kind of interested in medicine. When I was in high school, but uh, then I just realized that I am not really strong enough to deal with the uh, problems in if I can encounter in medicine studies. For example, I cannot see blood. Or <laughs> okay, I that's cannot, bad. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. I, then I said maybe it's not my field to go in. Then I decided to go for mathematics. But I also have a diploma as a mathematics teacher. So I was working at a high school for two years. I'm a 
I was somehow trying to motivate students to learn mathematics. It was like a technical school. At which age of the children? Uh, they were changing between 14 and 17. Mm, so elderly. Mm -hmm. yeah. I was trying to motivate them uh, for mathematics, but this kind of bias that I mentioned recently were, was really common in there among them. So they were really believing that they are not good enough to learn mathematics and so on. It was a tough task for me to try to motivate them, actually. Well, I tried my best, but <laughs> I don't really know if I was successful. Mm. At least I had the intention to uh, somehow motivate them. But Yeah, so uh, this was um, a standard way uh, to work after you finished your studies to become a teacher, or how is this organized? No, it is uh, in in my program. Mm -hmm. I I took the um, mathematics classes from the uh, science faculty, and on top of that, I took also the pedagogical mm. courses. So you have like two degrees. Um, it is actually a combined degree, combined which degree. is called the mm. master without thesis. So it's a different... <laughs> it's kind of funny because it's not something on top, but something without. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we did, we, I didn't write any uh, thesis at the end, but this is like a degree which combines the pure mathematics lectures and the pedagogical lectures together. So I, I took this pedagogical lectures and I got the diploma as a mathematics teacher for high school students. Mm. Um, Then I uh, was working at the high school, but somehow I was also uh, not sure if I would like to really uh, work as a teacher. I was really interested in the mathematics itself. Also, I wanted to do mathematics. That's why I kind of switched my uh, direction. And you were looking for a possibility to make a PhD in order to pursue mathematics. Yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah, that's kind of a thing which um, I'm told quite often, especially by women, that somehow they start out as picturing themselves as being a teacher, and for example, a mathematics teacher, which um, feels motivating enough to go through the study courses. But then there is a point where they fall in love with mathematics and uh, would like to stay with it. And then it, it kind of depends if they find encouragement for that or not uh, to stay. Yeah, I mean, I also like teaching. I enjoy teaching, uh, but uh, somehow I am too much concerned about the students and how to teach them. And this really takes too much energy. And I said, like, I can really spend this energy, put this energy to do mathematics and maybe produce something there as well. Mm. So as a, it is, um, for me, it is like a really intense task to be a teacher because I feel myself to care about the whole students and each of them and try to somehow motivate them. And when I realize that I cannot really achieve this, to 100%, this gives me the feeling of um, I had to do more and so on. This is kind of 
a little bit disturbing feeling, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, of course, um, for example, when you stay in academia in Germany, and I think um, in most big universities it's the same, you always have this combination of doing research and teaching. But then there is at least the advantage that the students, they are more or less adults. Yeah. So they're a little bit older and they have to take responsibility themselves. It's not that you have this formative age of really impressible young people where you think by doing this perfect, that's kind of the perfect thing in their life. So they are already through that and decided more or less um, the, the idea of their life by choosing mathematics as, as one of their topics or as a technical topic uh, which includes mathematics as one, one part. And then, of course, it's still on us to introduce them to the mathematics at the university in the right way, but it's kind of more or less eye-to-eye, -eye, more than with, with younger persons. Yeah, I mean, uh, in the younger ages, mm. the motivation and giving them some positive uh, attitude yeah. is much more important uh, compared to the bachelor or master's studies. Yeah. So, because, as you said, in bachelor and master's studies, they are already made the decision to study mathematics and come up to this point. So I don't have to really force myself to motivate them some more. I just have to be clear and and uh, clear and uh, somehow understandable in a reasonable way to communicate my knowledge. Mm. Yeah, I'm still quite impressed by you confessing that you just were excited about financial mathematics and you jumped into the field without very much preparation. <laughs> um, well, um, per personally, I am really determined, I can say, this about myself if I want to achieve something if I have some goal in my life I can I really uh, put a lot of effort and I invest too much time and energy in it to achieve this goal so this somehow um, this behavior pushed me forward to to do a PhD in financial mathematics I mean I I wouldn't feel um, that I will not be able to finish this. This was never a question for me. And this was in my mind, I will finish this, but I really have to um, work very hard, work very hard mm. to, to make a good product at the end. Uh, like depending on the feedbacks that I got on my thesis, I can say it was <laughs> somehow successful. Yeah, that's kind of a nice Nice thing, if you can look back and everything was well spent time. Yeah, that's, that I can really say that I uh, didn't waste my time at all. So it was really worth to, to take this risk and uh, put a lot of effort and time into this work. Uh, in that sense, I, I also uh, am feeling grateful to Professor Kohn that he gave me the chance actually to do my PhD under his supervision. So he didn't, um, he gave me the chance to give the interview and during the interview I was presenting already something and he did the evaluation and the decision as well. So it was not from the first look he can, he could think of, okay, she's, her background is not enough and let's not, Uh, 
take her or like give her a chance. So in that sense, I really, I'm really thankful to him. Yeah. And I'm thankful that you took the time to come here to Karlsruhe to have this conversation with me because it's so interesting to to see this type of things because that's kind of, I'm touching it a little bit with my mathematics, but it's always kind of <clears throat> just on the other side. <laughs> yeah, but it's always uh, good to learn new things yeah. and at least in a somehow general framework, not maybe too much into details, but... Mm -hmm. To get the first impression about that field, this is really good. Yeah. So thank you. Uh, I thank you too.